Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I appreciate you all being here on a stormy night like tonight. I kind of thought that some of you, especially the ones traveling from distances like the Tillman family, I thought they're going to look outside and go, no, Jim's on his own tonight. So I'm, I'm glad that you're all here. Let's turn to the book of Esther. I do words for a living. My stock in trade is words. I like words. I like the derivation of words. I like the etymology of words. I like the word etymology. I like words. I like the words cinnamon and aluminum because they're just as much fun to say as Deuteronomy. These are all fun words to say. Tonight we're going to start by talking a little bit about a word that you don't actually find written in the book of Esther, and yet a word that looms large all the way through the book of Esther. And we're going to bump into it tonight. We're going to bump into the action of God working behind the scenes, working everything out exactly according to his plan in order to provide for his people, to secure his people, and to keep his people safe as they are in Babylon, as they are in the area that is being ruled over by the Medes and the Persians. God has put Queen Esther right in the very rulership role that is going to allow her to protect the people of God. And that's not a mistake, is my argument. It actually happened because God works behind the scenes, I would argue, in everything. He works in everything in order to accomplish his ultimate will, even when we see things happen in this world that we think are a little crazy or you can't figure out how this can possibly make any sense, we still see that God is working through it and working in it and working according to it in order to accomplish his ultimate end. Otherwise, get this right, otherwise things like prophecy cannot work. If the Bible is true and if prophecy is true, then that means that the future is absolute. The future is definite. The future is not up for grabs, otherwise you can't actually prophesy the future. Well, the reason that God can accurately prophesy the future is because he is working through his omnipotent power, through his authority, through his sovereignty. He is working in everything to drive it toward the conclusion that he has already said it's going to come to. We call all of that providence. That's the word that we use when we talk about God's sovereign ability to do whatever God wants to do. We call that providence. So someone wrote to me this week and they said, can you give us a working definition of the word providence? Because you've been saying providence a lot lately. What does that mean? Where does that word come from? Well, the etymology of the word, are you familiar with video? What does video mean? Everybody's into video games And we watch TV and we watch videos and we go on YouTube and video, as current as that is, actually comes from an old Latin word 
that is the root of providence. It's the word vidi. In fact, think of it this way. You're probably familiar with the Latin phrase vene vidi vici. The translation of that is I came, I saw, I conquered. Okay, well, that middle word, vidi, is I saw. And so the Latin word that is at the root of providence has to do with seeing. And then there is an old English word again that comes out of the Latin that really has been around since about 1375. It's one of the early appearances of it. It's the word providen, which has to do with providing for things. In other words, you in advance, having seen what's coming, make sure that there is supply for what is going to eventually happen. It's the same thing that happens to mom and dads. You know that your child is going to have to go to school. And so since they have to go to school, they're going to need some clothes for school, they need a lunchbox, they're going to need some shoes, they're going to need some, what do you do? You provide for them. Why are you providing? Because you see in advance what it is they're going to need. That's the very root of this word provide. And it means to do it in advance. That word has continued to work through our language into the word providence, which has that word vide at the middle of it. So it has to do with seeing what's coming, and it has the pro ahead of it, which means in advance or ahead of time. And so it is foreseeing or forethought or provision ahead of time because you know what's coming. So that's my basic working definition of the etymology of the word. So now the dictionary will tell us that providence means the foreseeing care and guidance of God who knows the future, knows what's going to happen, and so he supplies for his people in advance because he knows what's going to happen because he's determined what's going to happen. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when I say providence or God did something providentially, what I'm saying in advance or what I'm saying, in fact, is God knows the future. He has already determined and declared the future. So in advance of that future getting here, he supplies what's necessary for his people to engage that future he knows is coming. Does that make more sense? Yes. Okay, that, that's what I mean when I say the providence of God. I'm not just talking about his sovereign ability to control all things I'm talking about his love for us and his desire and ability to supply us what we need in order to get through the times that he is in charge of and that's what we're going to see in the book of Esther tonight because as you may recall Esther's cousin Mordecai became aware of a plot against the king, Ahasuerus. And because he was aware of the plot, he told Esther about it. Esther told the king about it. The thing was examined, turned out to be true. The king's life was saved, and the plotters were killed. And then that event was written down in the chronicles of the king. But nothing was ever done for Mordecai for having saved the king's life. 
But that is God's providence. That is God preparing, supplying for what's coming. Because God knows full well that, here we go, that Haman, oh, that's music to my ears, that, that he is going to put forward a decree to kill all the Jews. God seeing that in advance, God decreeing and knowing that's coming in advance, has to make supply, has to make provision for the fact that that is going to happen. And so he has set Esther up as the queen of the Medes and the Persians so that she'll have access to the king, so that the plan of Haman can be thwarted, can be thwarted and he's doing all of that in advance of it actually occurring. God did not allow for Mordecai to be rewarded at the moment of his saving the king's life. That reward is being held providentially until the moment when it's most needed. Have you ever had an event in your life where you've thought, or just that, have you ever had an event in your life? Yes, Jim. Yeah, yes, Jim. We have. We have had events in our lives. Have you ever had an event in your life where you thought, oh, oh, now I get it. I couldn't understand why this happened. Why did I lose my job? Why did I have, what, have you ever found 20 bucks in your pocket? Oh, that's a fun day. I found 20 bucks in my pocket one time out in Los Angeles. I was about to wash the pants. There were 20 bucks in my pocket at a moment when I was like dead broke. And I thought, isn't that fortunate that I put that 20 bucks in that pocket and forgot about it? For months on end, until right now when I'm broke, I've got 20 bucks. We eat today. Yay! Okay, well, that's what I'm talking about. Those events in life that God is preparing in advance, where the things that occur in your life are occurring on purpose because they're going to have some satisfaction, some fulfillment, some necessity later in your life. And God knows that, so he's holding it until later in your life. And then when it happens, you go, wow, I couldn't have figured that out to save my life. Because God is in charge of everything that happens. So let's start at Esther chapter 5. And you're going to see the divine providence of God at work. Now it came about. On the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. And she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite to the entrance of the palace. Now what you have to remember is that Mordecai has come to Esther and said, Who knows, but you might be brought to the kingdom for just this time. Such a time as this. This event, the killing of all the Jews, God may have put you in this place providentially because you are the means through which he's going to save all us Jews. Who knows? And she says, well, I can't go in front of the king without being invited. If the king doesn't invite me, if the king doesn't demand that I come and appear before him, well, then I can be killed. That's the one rule. We have one law for all the Medes and the Persians. If you come before the king unannounced, death. That's the only outcome. And he says to her, who knows, but that you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And she concludes, all right, I'll do it. I'm going to go in front of the king. And then she says, and if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. 
it's worth the shot to save the people. And it happened when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. That's a sign of acceptance. If he doesn't hold out the golden scepter, the guards that are around immediately kill that person who has come into the king's presence. But the king sees Esther. She has great favor in his eyes. Don't forget that she has already said that uh, she has not seen the king in the last 30 days. I have not even been summoned to come to the king for these last 30 days, we heard back in chapter 4. And so when she appears in the court, he's happy to see her. He holds out the golden scepter. So Esther came near and she touched the top of the scepter, a sign of acceptance of his invitation. Verse 3, and the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it will be given to you. She could have asked for anything at that point. She could have said, half the kingdom? Okay, I'll take the good half. She could have asked for anything. What she's going to do is, rather than ask the king for a favor, rather than burst right out with, you know, there's a decree to kill all of my people. And I would like that decree to be rescinded. Rather than do that, she offers the king an opportunity to come to a banquet that she's going to make for the king because she's going to begin currying favor with the king until the king is just really determined to do anything for her, she asks. So she says this. She can have half the kingdom. She can have anything. And Esther said, if it please the king, may the king and Haman <laughs> come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Okay, now this is chicanery on her part. This is really clever. Okay, the king loves me. The king has accepted me. I have found favor in the king's eyes. But I also need to expose Haman, I also need to demonstrate that he's the one who's trying to kill all of the Jews. So I think I'll put on a banquet for just the two of them. Get the two of them alone, and then when I reveal the plan of Haman and tell the king who's already looking favorably on me, when I say, oh yeah, this man right here has put out a decree in your name to kill me. Well, the king's not going to accept that favorably. So she is really pulling a bit of emotional chicanery here, getting him all prepared and saying, I'm just going to make a banquet, and why don't the two of you come to it? If it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Let me point out that my son called this evening and said that he was stuck in Murfreesboro, and he said, I was planning to bring noisemakers tonight. <laughs> and he just didn't make it. No noisemakers tonight. I appreciate that you're making mouth noises. That's good. That's good. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly 
that I may do as Esther desires. The king buys in completely. All he heard was banquet. All he heard was, yeah, you want to prepare something for us? And we're going to come to yours and eat? I'm in. So go send for Haman right away. Boo. Send for him quickly. <laughs> that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? He realizes he's being buttered up. He realizes that she's preparing him for some big request. He knows it. And he says, what is your petition? For it will be granted to you. It must have been a very good meal. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. So Esther answered. There's her opportunity. There's her moment. Now she can say, that guy sitting right there at the table, that guy right there wants to kill all the Jews, and that's including me. And so we have to do something about this guy's decree. She still doesn't say anything. Instead, verse 7 says, Esther answered and said, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. In other words, I'll tell you my request tomorrow. But now that we've had a good meal, and now that you're well drunk, and now let's just go home and sleep, and, and then come back tomorrow, I'll make you another banquet. And it's going to be equally sumptuous, and I promise then I'll tell you what it is I want. Well, you know his curiosity has to be really piqued by now. A couple of times he has offered her anything, including half the kingdom. And she's still saying, oh, I'll tell you later. It's kind of like a tease. So what happens to Haman? <laughs> well, his pride's going to get the best of him. His ego is going to get the best of him. How often have you heard me say that the most often repeated sin in the Bible is the sin of pride? And pride, says the Bible, goes before a fall. We're going to see that here. He's going to get so lifted up in pride, he's not just going to fall, he's going to fall off a high scaffold with a rope around his neck. That's a mighty big fall. Then Haman went out that day happy and pleased of heart. So he's really happy to have been invited by the queen to a banquet with just him and the king. It doesn't get any better than this. I'm like third in the kingdom now. There's the king. There's the queen. There's me. And the queen must think an awful lot of me because she's making a banquet for me again tomorrow. And she keeps inviting me back to the palace. Man, she, I am something. Because this doesn't happen to everybody. I am just really important, obviously, in the kingdom. But right at the moment where he's feeling really full of himself, he sees Mordecai. And, of course, Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And he hates Mordecai. In fact, it's because of Mordecai that he convinced the king 
that there was a group of people in his kingdom that did not bow and did not respect his laws and had laws of their own. And his suggestion was, we need to kill all those people. And the king gave him the opportunity to go and create a decree in the king's name that allowed that all the Jews in the totality of the kingdom of Ahasuerus could all be killed on the last month of the year. So that's coming. Haman is happy and pleased in his heart. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, that's how important he thinks he is. I am so important in this kingdom that people ought to rise before me and tremble at me like I have the power of life and death. Because after all, I do. After all, I put out a decree. And these people are going to die because I put out the decree. You ought to tremble at me. You and all your people ought to tremble at me because I am the one who is going to make sure you all die. And what does Mordecai do? Nothing. Because Mordecai is not afraid of him. He reverences God. And as he made very clear in talking to Esther, he said, you know, it's, it may be through you. It may be that you're in the kingdom right now, but if you don't do it, God's going to deliver us some other way because he's so confident that God is going to provide. God is going to see them through this time and bring them out of it. So he is reverencing God rather than reverencing Haman, who obviously does not deserve it. Here he comes again. Haman, there he is. Haman controlled himself, however, and he went to his house and he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, because he can't wait to brag. He can't wait to tell somebody, hey, you know what? I was just over there at the king's house. And you know what I was doing? Eating and drinking with the king and the queen. You know why I was there? Because the queen asked for me specifically. That's how important I am. Haman recounted to them, Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and the instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king. See, he thinks he's number three in the kingdom. Haman also said... Even Esther the queen, let nobody but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Can't you just hear him saying, aren't you all impressed? Look how cool I am. The queen invited me and it's just me and the king. I am on my way up. Verse 13. Yet, all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. I'm so happy. I'm so proud. I have all this great stuff. The queen has honored me. The king has honored me. But you know, every time I see this Mordecai guy, and he doesn't bow and scrape, or he doesn't stand and pay attention, and he doesn't tremble at me, that it just makes me so angry it takes away the joy of everything else I've got yet this does not satisfy me every time I see 
Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then Zeresh. Zeresh? We're booing Zeresh now? You were a little too prepared. And the woman you're married to. And the horse you rode in on. So. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, 50 cubits high, made, and in the morning, ask the king, since you're so close to the king, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Now, by the way, 50 cubits is not necessary. 10 feet is high enough to kill a man. All that a platform has to be to hang a man is just taller than the man. That, that's really all you need, and that man's going to fall and strangle. But we want to make an example of this guy. Let's build a scaffold so large that everybody in town looks at it and says, who's going to hang on this? This is, this is horrible. Who Look at that. So that when we put Mordecai on it, nobody else will ever do what Mordecai did. Everyone's going to tremble at you. Everyone's going to do obeisance to you because they're not going to want to end up on the 50 cubit high scaffold dropping to their death. But he's not going to be extra dead at that height. There's no bonus here. It's not like bonus death. He's just going to hang. Then Jeresh, his wife, Boo, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. After you've put forward the command to build a scaffold to hang Mordecai on, then you're going to feel satisfied. Then you can go to the banquet with the king and you can be happy. And the advice pleased Haman. You're losing steam, you know that. <laughs> so we had the gallows made. Chapter 6. During that night, here's providence. During that night, the king could not sleep. Why couldn't he sleep that night? Dinner. Could be dinner. <laughs> but he also had wine. He was well drunk. But he couldn't sleep. He's, he's awake for some reason. Walking the floor. He's just up. I just, I can't sleep for some reason. I think God troubled his sleep because look what he did. So he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Okay, I need a bedtime story. And what better bedtime story than a story about me? Come and tell me all the things that I did. Come and read the chronicles to me so that I can remember the things that I did. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were the doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So when he originally saved the king's life, nothing was done for him. 
But that was providence. That was on purpose. God was holding that till this moment so that he could wake the king up so that the king could go back and say, whatever happened for that guy? Nothing? I think he should be honored now. Should we apply that for just a moment? Because sometimes I know in my life, I have had the sense of, I worked really, really hard on that. Or I did a good turn to somebody. Or I, I fed someone that I didn't know. Or I, gee, I hope somebody was watching when I did that good thing. And I got like zero reward for it. I'm sure every one of you are thinking of your example of when that happened to you. But it doesn't matter if nobody saw it. Because God saw it. God knows. And God can be providentially holding on to whatever the payback, whatever the reward, whatever the consequence of that. He can be holding on to it until the moment when it's most necessary to your providential movement forward through life. Well, that's exactly what he's done right here. He's held on to the reward until this moment where I believe God made sure the king couldn't sleep so that the king would go back and read from the Chronicles. And wasn't it lucky that when the servants started reading from the Chronicles, they just happened to read about Mordecai? You got to figure that King Ahasuerus has done a lot of other stuff. Everything he's done every day is written down in the Chronicles. But when they open the scroll and start reading, lo and behold, they read about Mordecai. Wasn't that lucky? That's providential. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who's in the court right now? He wants some advice. He wants to know who's out there in the court. Just so happens, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. Wasn't that lucky? If anybody else had been in the court, the king would have asked their advice. But he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Again, just happenstance. Just circumstance, just oops, just lucky. Or absolutely providential. Every one of the steps of this story is absolutely providential. So Haman is in the outer court of the king's palace, boo. And in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai from the gallows, which he had prepared for him. So he's having the gallows prepared. He knows he has to go to the king in order to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai. That's the reason that he just happens to be in the court of the king. Just happens just happens to be in the court of the king so that he can talk about hanging Mordecai. The king is, meanwhile, looking for somebody to give him some advice. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman... Yeah, come on, you bunch of weaklings. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? He instantly thinks, I'm three in the kingdom right now, okay? I'm coming to the queen's banquets every night. It's just me and the king. 
Clearly the king is asking my advice about how he wants to honor somebody because he plans to honor me. That, that's got to be what he's thinking. So Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? I mean, I'm the guy. I'm third in the kingdom. So, of course, he's going to make up a really good honoring system. This is what the king ought to do, he says. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe, which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. So let me have the king's horse, let me have the king's robe, and let me have a king's crown. And then ride me through town, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Okay, he thinks this is all about him. He's come up with a great scheme. I'm going to ride the king's horse. I'm going to wear the king's robe. I'm going to have the king's crown, and it's going to be put on me by all the king's princes, and then they're going to parade me through town so that everybody can see how important I am, because that's what the king wants declared. Then the king said to Haman, man, you got to know this one shook him up. (laughs) Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said. And do so for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> Don't. Don't. <laughs> and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting in the king's gate, and do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Everything you just described, do it for Mordecai. King doesn't know that he hates Mordecai. The king doesn't know there's a gallows being built 50 cubits tall that he's going to hang Mordecai on. The king doesn't know that the reason Haman came in before the king was to get the king's permission to hang him. I'm going to hang Mordecai the Jew. Is that okay with you? King goes, yeah, okay. No, instead, by the time he leaves... It's go and honor Mordecai by doing everything you thought was going to be for you. Put him on my horse. Put my robe on him. Put a crown on him and make my princes parade him through the street saying this is what the king does for the man that he wants to honor. So Haman has come up with the ultimate wrong plan. (laughs) So Haman took the robe and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Why would he do all of that anyway? Because the king said to, and he said, and don't neglect to do any of it. That gives you some sense 
of how people feared that king. That king has the power of life and death. If you even come into his presence and he hasn't called you, dead. That's the rule of the Medes and the Persians. If you come in before that king, dead. And so Haman realizes he's got to do everything the king said or the king's going to kill him. I just want you to see the kind of fear and reverence and awe that people had for that king. When he said do it, people did it even to their own detriment. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Why is he in mourning now? Because there's a 50 cubit structure that he had built to kill the very man that the king desires to honor. Okay, that puts him on completely the wrong side of the king now. And he realizes that he's in deep trouble once the king figures out what the plot was. So he recounted to Zeresh, his wife, who you can also boo, and all his friends, who you can also boo. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> Apparently there were three friends. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, then you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. That's an interesting statement because... He is literally going to take a fall. And it's not just a fall from the king's graces. It's a fall from the 50 cubit structure, the 50 cubit gallows. He's going to fall hard. Chapter 7, now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. Okay, think about it again. Haman is well aware that he's going to be on the wrong side of the king. Why does he show up for the banquet the next night? Because he knows the king has beckoned him. He knows he's got to go. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request, even to half of the kingdom? And it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. In other words, she's saying, here's my petition. Save my life. He didn't see that one coming. He's looking for, you want half the kingdom. You want, what do you want? You want gold? You want silver? You want power? What do you want? And she says, if I have any pleasure in your sight, save my life. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women... I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance 
to the king. You understand what she's saying? If I and my people had simply been sold to be slaves, then I wouldn't even trouble the king with it because that would be an annoyance to the king. And your majesty is so high that you don't need to be annoyed with the little troubles of my people who are being sold into slavery. But we're being killed. We're being annihilated. We're being wiped out. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? He's, he's sitting at your table, King. He's right here next to you. This was the ultimate plot of Esther. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Boo. Massive booing here. Boo. Big booing there. <laughs> then Haman Boo. became terrified yeah. before the king and the queen. <laughs> yes. Talk about being undone. She has completely hoodwinked me. She has revealed me to the king. And you've got to know that Haman did not know that Esther was Jewish. But at that moment, he came to the realization, oh my gosh, when I put out the decree to kill all the Jews, I was putting out a decree to kill the queen. That's not going to go well for me. Little research. Little research would have helped. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe talking to Mordecai about his family. Hey, you're here by the gate again. How you doing? Listen, where are you all from? What's your sign? Really? Me too. We should get along. <laughs> Google. Should have Googled. <laughs> And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine, and he went into the palace garden. In other words, he just up and stormed out and went to the palace garden to think about what to do. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. He was bragging to all his friends and his wife and everything just a day ago. Oh, yeah, man, she likes me. She invited me to a banquet, and now another banquet. It's just me and the king. I mean, the queen, she thinks I'm something. So he stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. In other words, once he saw the king get that angry and storm out, he knew that he was in trouble. Then when the king returned, from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Okay, picture this. Esther is reclining on a, a couch, a sofa type thing, common in Middle Eastern uh, furniture where these, these loungers, these recliner things. She's reclining on it. He's begging for his life. He's throwing himself on the recliner that she's laying on. And at that very moment, the king walks in. And the king doesn't see him begging. The king sees him molesting his wife. Not good. Not a good look. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, 
Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? Yeah, you got to know that Haman realizes he's in bad kind of trouble. The king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. In other words, the guards that are around who see him falling on Esther aren't going to allow any of this. They all realize that the king is going to kill this guy. They get a sack and put it over his head immediately. And as soon as that bag is over his head, he knows it's over. It's all done. So they covered Haman's face. Boo. Boo. <laughs> then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai who spoke good on behalf of the king. It just keeps getting worse. As if it couldn't get worse. As if I'm not already guilty of trying to kill the queen, and then I'm trying to molest the queen, and then the king catches. Now I've got a bag on my head, and now he discovers that I have a gallows 50 cubits high on which I was going to hang Mordecai, who saved the king's life. It just doesn't get much worse. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. All of that. The, the reason that we took our time going through it bit by bit, detail by detail, is that it was all providence. And can you see the providence of God in that story? Now, of course, the book's not over. We're going to continue looking through the book. But, but I just want you to see the hand of God, even though, as has been mentioned over and over, even though he's not named. Even though the author of the book doesn't take the time to say, and then God providentially intervened to make sure that Haman wound up on his own scaffold. He doesn't say any of that. It's just by reading the story, you can see how everything fell perfectly in line. And yet again, you see God's faithfulness to his covenant people. He has already entered into covenant with the Jews. And don't forget that we're talking specifically about the Jews here. And that it is through the Jews, through the tribe of Judah, that it has already been prophesied that the Messiah is going to come. So you can't kill the Jews. If you wipe out the Jews, no Messiah. But God has already declared there's going to be a Messiah. So you can't kill the Jews. And here was an example of a man dead set who had the power who had the authority from the king. He was absolutely determined to wipe out the Jews. Could he do it? No, because you can't do what God doesn't want done. Amen. And you can only do the things that God wants you to do. Because that's how providence works. And providence is broadly and brightly on display 
in that portion of the Book of Esther. Any comments? Hitler couldn't do it either. Hitler couldn't do it either. Yeah, Hitler tried to wipe out the Jews. Could he do it? Nope. Because God didn't want it done. So many years ago, I think you went with me. My, my boss was Jewish. Yeah. And he had a child. And his child was being dedicated in the synagogue. And so he invited us to go. I had enough Hebrew to try to follow along as the cantor was reading a rather extended passage. And the guy who was sitting next to me, every once in a while, would have pity on me and say, no, we're actually over. <laughs> and I started trying to follow again, along again. But the rabbi stood up and began to talk about Haman. And what I recall about him speaking about him was that he has come back many times through history, Ooh. including Hitler, who's an obvious example, Stalin, yeah. who did not like Jews, but there have been plenty of others. And this was before Yasser Arafat, but he would have been included in that list of Hamans who have, who have persecuted the Jews through history. His point was, Haman never has succeeded and never will because we're God's people. Mm -hmm. But it was very interesting listening to that perspective Yeah, as he talked about Haman uh, yeah. in that, that, I don't even know if they call it a sermon in a synagogue. But anyway, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Uh, let me add one quick theological point then. If the Hamans through history, of which there have been many, couldn't get rid of the Jews altogether, couldn't destroy Israel altogether. There is a theology going on in modern Christendom in both Reformed and non-Reformed camps that insists that God is done with Israel and the Jews and that he has effectively replaced them or supplanted them with the church. My question is, can they do what Haman couldn't do? Nope. Does it matter how often they say that God is done with Israel? No, of course not. Because if God's not done with Israel, which God repeatedly says he's not done with Israel, if God's not done with Israel, then it doesn't matter what human, whether Hitler, whether Haman, whether anybody, if, if God's not done with Israel, you're never going to get rid of Israel. Because those are the people that God has specifically determined through all of human history to be his people. And that's just how that's going to be, whether you like it or not, and whether you can make theological arguments against it or not. The reality is you can't get rid of the people of God. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Alrighty then. Give the people... On the internet, listening in, give them a good solid boo one more time. <laughs> and then to make up for it, give them a good yay. Yay! Now tell them goodbye. Bye. <laughs>Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.